0: That was the first 30 30 seconds of Chopin's Minute Waltz. Greetings, this is Tom Newhouse. This is my fourth podcast. And at the end of the podcast, you will hear the rest of the Minute Waltz. Um, So we continue with the great migratory adventure of Padmore Cobina. And to remind you a little bit, I met Padmore back in 2005. And the last time we heard about how he got different jobs. Um, he um, um, was a tallyman in Tama, counting fish. He had a car and he was uh, driving people around. He served as a taxi. Uh, he had a um, small um, um, small phone parts business, cell phone parts business uh, in Takarati. Uh, but he never could make enough money, and he had a child, and he want, he he wanted a way out. So he decided, oh, I don't care if I die win, if I die or live, I I'd be glad to live, but um, I want to try to make a migration. So he heard from a friend, and so he went started on this migration through Togo and then through Niger and finally to Libya. Uh, where in Libya, he ended up in a camp where people are waiting for the balloon boats, which are made out of white balloons. Uh, And so that's where we start today. When the boat arrived, which was really a large white rubber dinghy called a balloon boat because it's made of giant white rubber balloons, they packed 156 of us in it. Those on the edges dangled their feet in the water. One man steered the outboard motor and the other held the compass and kept us pointed in the right direction. We motored for 15 hours straight until we left Libyan waters and entered international waters. At this point, an Italian rescue ship met us and we boarded it. We sailed for three days and picked up a lot more migrants. We finally arrived in Vibo Valencia, which is on the tip of the Italian boot, a port, a main migrant port, <clears throat> On arrival, we were greeted by Italian doctors and Red Cross personnel who gave us clean clothes and food and also did brief health inspections. We entered a giant police station where they took our fingerprints and photos. Once processed by the police, we were all put on buses. My bus went to a camp near the town of Foggia, which is about 300 kilometers to the north of um, that of Vibo, Valencia and it's located on the east side of the boot, uh, along the Adriatic Sea. This part of Italy is known for its vegetable farms. About one-third of Italy's tomatoes are produced here, and a lot of the labor for planting and picking is done by undocumented migrant workers like me. There are over 12,000 migrant farm workers in the region around Foggia. Most live in camps lacking electricity, running water, and proper sanitation. The locals call these camps ghettos. After all, ghetto is an Italian word. My camp had electricity and water, but the bathroom was outside. In my camp, we internees each received an ID card. This allowed us to travel within Italy legally, and then return. We had to be back within three days, otherwise we lost the opportunity to to live in that particular camp, which was much nicer than others. I spent two months here, but many in the camp had been there for as long as two years. After all, they had free lodging and food, and there was um, employment available. During the two-month stay in the camp, I spent my days either at tomato farms digging holes for the new tomato plants or going to nearby Foja and buying old stuff that I could sell for a profit in the camp. The people in my camp were lucky to not be part of the more common camp system where you were contacted by a caporali or gang master who charged you money to drive you to the farm. To stay in my camp, you had to sign out if you wanted to travel somewhere in Italy, and you had to be back on the third day or you lost the right to live in my camp, and then you would have to go live in another of the less comfortable camps. Much as I liked where I was staying, I was not happy to be an agricultural worker. After all, I didn't go to air conditioning school to learn how to care for tomato plants. One day, using my earnings, I took a bus to Naples. Here I met someone who could provide me with forged documents designed for migrants who were looking to go elsewhere in Europe. With them, I would be able to fly, for example, to Denmark, where an old schoolmate of mine, Ibo, lives with his father and works in a supermarket. The forger charged me 400 euros for the document. I stayed at his house for three days, waiting for him to finish his job he was a nice man who lived by himself with the document in hand i took a train to milan and then flew to copenhagen where abo met me at the airport however i did not have the appropriate work documents for denmark so i looked for what was called black work this is labor done by undocumented africans In order to find such jobs, you had to know people in your own community because finding them is done only by word of mouth as they are quite illegal and discouraged by the government. After two months with Ebo and his father and finding no job prospects, I took the train to Malmö, Sweden, which is only 28 kilometers away. But when the train reached the border, I was arrested by the Swedish authorities for having falsified documents and I was incarcerated in Malmö for a few days, then transferred to Istad, where I was imprisoned for a month. Finally, I had my court date. Because my papers did not belong to anyone but were merely forged, the authorities released me after I signed a document that I promised not to give the police any more trouble. I was sent to an immigrant camp in Malmö and then to another camp in Hesselholm. There were many of us sub-Saharan Africans there. They treated us nicely, much better than in Italy. We were provided with clothes, food, and money. I could leave the camp during the day to go hang out anywhere I wanted, like in Malmo, which was more than an hour away. But after five months of this, I was told that the Swedish government was going to deport me to Italy since my one legal piece of ID had been made in Italy. I pleaded with the authorities to let me stay, but they would not budge. So I contacted another friend, Malik, also from Takaradi, who lived in Vejo, and I took a bus there. Malik found me a job as a cleaner in a gym. I worked there for about two months. I met my girlfriend Tova on Badu, and I moved to her apartment, which was two hours away in northern Malmö. She worked in a warehouse. She knew I was unhappy at the gym and also living with Malik, who was very jealous of my white girlfriend. I was glad to move out of his place. The reproachful stares were getting on my nerves. So I moved in with Tova, and we lived together for seven months. During that time, we shared our life stories, and we found a lot to commiserate about. We got along so well that we decided to get married. Tova had four children from a previous marriage. I never met two of them, but the other two lived in the area. Uh, They were 19 and 24 and lived with uh, Tova's mother. After our marriage at the Swedish equivalent of the Justice of the Peace, we started to make plans for our life together. First, we needed to solve the problem of my illegal status as immigrant. I suggested that I return to Ghana to spend time with my two sons and to apply for a residency permit, which I was sure to get since I was now married to a Swedish citizen. I returned to Ghana in early 2019 and moved in with my father's relatives who lived in Kumasi, Tova paid for the ticket and also for living expenses. This made it easy for me to take the bus from Kumasi to Tema, where my sons live with their mother. It also made it possible for me to take another bus to Abuja, Nigeria, in order to visit the Swedish embassy. Peter, who now lives in Abuja, where he works for Ecowas as a trade advisor, graciously paid for my hotel room in Abuja and he and I had dinner together. It was so nice to spend time with him. He is married, has two children. In April of this year, 2020, Tova emailed me that she had received my residency permit. So as soon as planes fly again, I'll be on my way north to join my wife. I feel so lucky that in my case, suffering actually led to joy. With most of the migrants I met, suffering just leads to more suffering. During the rest of today's podcast, I'm going to tell you about the most important project of my life, which has been to make Depa and Pezouin chocolate-producing towns. Why do I want to make two towns in Côte d'Ivoire chocolate makers? First, some foundational facts. Fact one, West Africa produces over 73% of the world's cocoa beans. Fact two, Côte d'Ivoire produces 42% of the world's cacao, and Ghana produces 21%. Fact three, there are over 2.5 million cocoa farmers in West Africa, and virtually all of them earn less than $1 per day, and therefore are among the poorest people on planet Earth. So, How to fix this very serious problem? After all, poverty is at the base of so many world problems. Deforestation and migration are two related to cocoa that are poverty related. Poverty and desperation caused the poor cocoa farmers to cut down forests in order to plant more cocoa. Poverty and desperation caused them to risk their lives crossing the Sahara, packed into pickup trucks, and then the Mediterranean jammed in balloon boats. Poverty contributes to self-reinforcing agricultural loops that have only negative impacts, eventually leading to the destruction of the agricultural way of life, the disappearance of the people from the land, the planting of biodiversity destroying monocultures such as one finds in Europe and the United States, and the taking over by outside entities such as foreign governments and hedge funds, whose interest it is to exploit and extract rather than to develop. I started visiting West Africa in 2003. I wanted to spend some time learning about the situation there. Gradually, I realized that the Western imagined system of fair trade is a mere dream. It has no bearing on reality. Right now, a fair trade farmer earns a mere 19 cents more for a pound of dried cocoa beans That is not going to pay for medicine for the children, school fees, clothing, agricultural inputs such as fertilizers. In essence, I came to the realization that Certified, Fair Trade, Rainforest Alliance, Oots, Cocoa Beans, and products made from them are merely feel-good devices to make educated Americans and Europeans feel like they're doing something. But they are not. The situation continues as it was 50 years ago. There is just as much child labor as ever, and poverty is at the same level. The fundamental problem is that we have not tackled the fundamental problem, which is the price paid to the cocoa farmer. Short of altering the international trade system, which is based on the principles of laissez-faire free market capitalism, what can we do? it became apparent to me that we need to find ways to help the farmer climb higher on the value chain and take down barriers that prevent the farmer from selling directly to the consumers, altering the value chain, encouraging the farmer to become increasingly involved in production. That does not step on any of the little idealistic toes of the free marketers. So that is what I have chosen to do. The market can continue to function as before if companies like Trader Joe's can knock out the middlemen or even buy up producers down the chain and consolidate why can't a nonprofit effect change by helping the farmer climb up the chain in 2013 we made our first batch of chocolate in Dapa we had built a building for hauling rice and on one side was a small room for making chocolate so while the professional rice haulers were in the big room setting up the rice hauling machine, David Logbo-Zigro and I were in the nearby chocolate room making our first batch of chocolate from David's own beans. I built the rice hauling operation because I knew that I needed something concrete that the villagers could touch and feel and know that something really good had happened to them. I knew that the chocolate operation's benefit would not be immediately apparent because it would take years to buy the machines and to develop markets for the chocolates. I knew that the big chocolate makers would scoff at my efforts. It's like looking at Mount Everest from Kathmandu and claim that you're going to climb it without using bottled oxygen. As one famous French chocolatier said to me, you're not going to produce anything even close in quality compared to what the large chocolate companies can make. It's easy to make such a claim, especially if you ignore a very important movement in the chocolate business, the bean-to-bar movement. There are now hundreds of small companies proving the French chocolatier wrong every day. For proof, just visit Dandelion Chocolate Company in downtown San Francisco, or buy a bar of Granada chocolate if you don't live in San Francisco. Yes, if you base your chocolate opinions on Lint or Coco Cote d'Or or Ritter Sport or Hershey products, then yes, the village chocolate will never meet your standards. These chocolates are like cheap perfumes. They're blended in the extreme to hide any possible defect. They use lecithin and vanillin to smooth over the defects that blending won't hide. But if you prefer Glyn Livet to Chivas Regal, then you know what I mean. Glenlivet is an unblended scotch, and its peaty flavor sings out like the soprano in Aida. What I'm saying, then, is that Village Chocolate can stand on the competitive international stage, its single origin, and proud of it. Since then, David and I have been steadily building the Depa Chocolate Factory. In 2014, I sent a $3,500 chocolate mélangeur to Abidjan. When David picked it up from the airport, I had to send him another $3,500 just to pay the import fees, pegged at 100% of the price. In the following years, I raised the money to buy processing machinery. I played the piano. I played the pipe organ. I cooked French food. I cooked Swedish food. Anything to attract people to my fundraisers. David, meanwhile, found a man in Abidjan who could manufacture processing machinery. Instead of paying twenty to $30,000 per machine, we paid two to $3,000. Granted, it's not great to look at, but it works. Uh, most of it. Actually, the winnower never did work, and I'm going to have to buy another one. But the roaster does 100 pounds of beans at a time using a fraction of a bottle of propane. We have a cracker that breaks the beans. David winnows by throwing the cocoa nibs and hulls into the air in front of a fan. Our five-foot-high grinder... Bright blue, loud, boisterously turns the nibs into perfect chocolate liquor. The first mélangeur has bitten the dusk. The second mélangeur has bitten the dust. Now the third one. It's sitting in the port of Abidjan waiting for the coronavirus to say it's okay to come get it. After I sent him $1,000 to pay for the paperwork, David started a cooperative called Socoplan, This means that the tariffs on the melangeur are now only 60% instead of 100%, saving us thousands of dollars on import fees and eventually opening up the world of export. In 2018, I built another rice processing and chocolate-making facility in a neighboring town, Pezouin. It's even bigger than Depas and has a very nice covered terrace in front, so women can sit and wait for their hauled rice, while taking care of their infants and young children. The rice huller only takes up about a third of the building that is about 30 feet by 30 feet. The chocolate side is now being finished. I recently re-borrowed the $5,000 that I had finally paid back in order to make progress on the Pezuan facility. My idea for that factory is for it to make flavored cocoa mixes. There are no African cocoa mixes sold on the continent of Africa. Instead, people drink Milo, a powdered mix made in Europe from Ivorian cocoa beans. Once again, bottom of the value chain. But it doesn't have to be this way. There's no evil capitalist at the meetings in Davos, Switzerland saying, thou shalt drink only Milo. Or maybe there is. In order to make Pesla on the site for cocoa beverage making, I need to buy a cocoa butter press in order to press the cocoa butter out of the chocolate liquor, that is, chocolate without added sugar. To do that, one needs a machine that exerts 75 or more tons of pressure on a pot of chocolate liquor. The cocoa butter trickles out as a golden fluid. The Pezuan operation will buy chocolate liquor from DAPA and then sell back the cocoa butter for DAPA's chocolate production. in the press cake, which is cocoa solids, that only retain about 10% of the original fat, they will be ground into cocoa powder. We are waiting to hear about a grant that will make it possible to buy the Cocoa Press and for Pezuan to become our second chocolate products factory. I am cautiously optimistic, and I will keep you informed. Well, that's the end for that particular story. I just wanted to remind you um that we depend very heavily on donations and i'm hoping to get a donation from um a, a federal grant but i don't know yet um it's looking good but i need every i need people to help me and so i and just for me to travel there i can't get money donated for that uh, and i have to travel there i have to be there to work with people i can't do everything from afar So I just am asking once again, uh, if you can send me a little money, that would be so great. Uh, You can donate in one of two ways. One is to visit ProjectHopeAndFairness.org. It's all one word, ProjectHopeAndFairness.org. And then click on Donate at the bottom of the page. The other way to donate is to send a check to Donations, comma, P-H-N-F. 1298 Warren Road, Cambria, California, 93420. And please make the check out to Project Hope and Fairness. Well, okay, thank you so much. And uh, that's the end of my Project Hope and Fairness piece. for. Okay, there are a few minutes left in this podcast. So it's time for some FFF, Fun Food Facts. Fun food fact number one, and probably the only one, how to hard boil an egg. The best way is to carefully place as many eggs in a saucepan as you want and cover them with cold water. Bring to a boil over high flame, reduce to a low flame, and let boil for 12 minutes. Very carefully walk to the sink and pour the boiling water down the drain. Place the pan in the sink and fill with cold water. Repeat. Then empty again and peel the eggs. Here's a little science to go with that. The last part of the egg to set in the uh, is the yolk. Its proteins have higher denaturation temperatures than the egg white, so the yolk sets last. The egg white is made up of two parts, the thick white and the thin white. The thick white has proteins called ovomucins. The thin white has proteins called ovalbumins. I'm sure you've noticed the difference between the two whites. The thick white takes longer to set. That's because ovomucin proteins have a higher denaturation temperature, that is cooking temperature, than ovalbumin proteins. Sometimes when you soft boil an egg, part of the egg white sets and the other part does not set. That's because the ovomucin with the higher temperature or cooking temperature sets after the ovalbumin with the lower denaturation temperature. Now back to the hard-boiling eggs. Sometimes they're difficult to peel. This is because the eggs are too fresh. After a hen lays an egg, carbon dioxide slowly leaves the egg white through the pores in the shell. Yes, the shell is actually a chicken screen door. It is full over of over 5,000 holes. It's perforated by 5,000 holes, which allow the egg to respire so the growing chicken remains alive. When freshly laid, the pH of the egg white is more acidic due to the carbon dioxide in the egg white. As an egg ages, the pH becomes more basic. The acidic egg uh, white is more crumbly and less cohesive than the more alkaline egg white. When an egg white is less cohesive, it adheres to the shell rather than to itself, and the result is the royal mess that you are probably familiar with. So the moral of the story is, use older eggs for hard-boiled eggs. But don't make them too old. Older eggs have more sulfur, which makes the egg yolk proteins turn green. If that happens, serve them with ham. You can then call it green eggs and ham. I've heard that somewhere. Well, so because we have time left, let's go on to the food history section. My fun food history fact for today, FFHF, has to do with breakfast cereal. Why do Americans eat such a phenomenal variety of cereals? Well, here's a shocker for you. Nobody else does. It's an American phenomenon. It all started in Battle Creek, Michigan in the 19th century, at a sanatorium sanatorium run by a man named W.K. Kellogg and his trusty sidekick, C.W. Post. Rich people, who usually ate high meat and high salt fats back in the 19th century, would open their billfolds and spend lavishly on a week or two at uh, Harvey's sanatorium. But W.K. was not content with merely fleecing for a week or two. He wanted to make money year-round. And why be stuck with just one socioeconomic class? So he and his trusty sidekick, Post, thought of processing what the horses were eating into something for humans. They took feed corn kernels, hydrated them a little, and ran them through steel rollers to flatten them. Then they dried them in the oven. The result was the first dried breakfast cereal, cornflakes. And it sold handsomely, so handsomely that Post got disenchanted with being a mere employee. He took a bunch of cooked dried grains and toasted them without flattening them. He cracked them and then oven roasted them again. He called the result granula. But that wasn't a very good name, so he changed it to grape nuts. The whole industry is based on dextrinized starch. If you boil and then bake starch granules, you end up with a semi-sweet tasting product. It's not that good for you. The milk you pour over it is the most nutritious part. And of course, all the other cereals since then are much worse for you. They have high glycemic indexes, which means you're making the beta cells in your pancreas go crazy. And if you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, that's not good. And believe it or not, we have time for a troubleshooting question. Today's question is, how do I keep my vegetables green? The reason for the greenness of a green vegetable is chlorophyll. This molecule is found in the leaves and stems of plants. It is a handsome ring of carbon and nitrogen atoms, at the center of which is a magnesium atom. When you cook vegetables too long, or in the presence of an acidic ingredient like lemon juice, The magnesium gets popped out of the ring and replaced by a hydrogen ion. The the color of the vegetable goes from green to gray. When you overcook a vegetable, the cell membranes bust, and acids in the cell cytoplasm leach out and cause the above change. To prevent this, always barely cook the vegetable. For example, with spinach, cook it until it barely wilts. Then reheat it very briefly. Do not add lemon juice, wine, or vinegar. This same thing is true of any green vegetable. You may have heard that baking soda can be added. This is a bad idea. It destroys thiamine, an important B vitamin, and it solubilizes or dissolves the cell walls, causing the vegetable to turn to mush. Always buy fresh green vegetables. If you buy ones that are borderline, they often have some yellow on them, indicating that the chlorophyll has started to degrade. In that case, your green vegetable will turn an olive color when cooked. Well, now we truly have run out of time. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. See you next week, podcast number five.